Lab Talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab Talk with Laura. Welcome to the fifth episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Today, I'm joined by Srishti Kashyap, who is a doctoral student in the microbiology department at UMass Amherst, conducting research at the intersection of microbiology, geology, and planetary science. She studies microbe-mineral interactions and biogenic mineral transformations catalyzed by high-temperature microbes. She's originally from New Delhi, India, and moved to the Pioneer Valley for undergrad at Mount Holy College, where she majored in astronomy and biology. After graduation from Mount Holyoke, she went on to work for a year in Maryland at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center with the team searching for organics on Mars. Apart from her research, she also serves as a steward for her department in GEO, the Graduate Employee Organization, as well as a member of the mentoring committee with GWIZ, the Graduate Women in STEM. Thank you for joining us, Trishti. Thanks, Laura, for having me on the show. Um, also joining us today is George Lacasio, who is a master's student in the Environmental Conservation Department. He's originally from Boston, but had been living in Arizona for 10 years before moving back to Boston in 2012 to go to school at Bunker Hill Community College, from which he transferred to UMass in fall 2015. As an undergrad at UMass, he studied plant, soil, and insect science before becoming a graduate student in spring 2017. His research looks at how pollen and nectar affect a gut parasite in the native bumblebee. Thank you for joining us, George. Thanks for having me. Also joining me as co-host today is Tim Lovett, who is a comic, the CEO of Comedy as a Weapon, um, and a DJ on 106.3 Smooth FM. Thank you for joining us, Tim. You know I wouldn't miss this, Laura. <laughs> Okay, so I think we'll start with Shristi. Uh First, do you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research? So my, my research essentially uh, lies at the intersection of microbiology, geology, and planetary science in this field of actually astrobiology. Um, and for those who are listening who are unfamiliar with the field of astrobiology, astrobiology is really a field that seeks to address questions pertaining to the origin, evolution, and distribution, distribution of life in the universe. Um, and within that broader field, uh, there's a central theme that seeks to find signs of life or biosignatures um, to see if we can detect life, not only like early life on Earth, but also life elsewhere in the universe. And so as part of that broader framework, my research looks at uh, these high temperature microorganisms that come from extraterrestrial analog environments, specifically deep sea hydrothermal vent environments or hot spring environments, and sees how they interact and manipulate minerals uh, to catalyze certain specific types of transformations that if uh, get recorded in rocks could potentially tell us something about the potential for life whether in early Earth environments or analog environments on Earth or elsewhere in the universe. And so the organisms that I study actually are these uh, high-temperature archaea, um, and these are microbes that grow optimally at 90 or 95 degrees Celsius. Some of the ones that I study grow at that hot temperature. So for reference, our body temperatures are 
you know, at 37 degrees Celsius. So these are really, really hot temperatures for microbes to, to subsist at. And they grow uh, in the absence of oxygen, in the absence of light, um, and really rely on the, the chemical energy sources that are available uh, through these interactions with rocks and minerals. Um, and so what I do is I grow these organisms in the presence of these different minerals, uh, see the types of transformations that occur and how they occur, what the mineral and microbial constraints are, um, as well as the mineral transformations that occur, uh, specifically to try and understand if we can, if, if those transformations are spectrally characterized, if they can tell us um, something about the presence of life. So. Some of the spectral characterizations we do uh, are using spectroscopy tools that are already available on uh, spacecraft. Um, so the whole idea is that we could potentially do remote detection uh, if need be. So spectral just meaning light? Yeah, so, yeah. Li so you know, spectroscopy is all about light's interaction with matter. Um, and so, you know, at a particular wavelength of light when uh, you know, a particular molecule and its bonds interact with, uh, you know, that wavelength of light, it, it produces a unique spectral signature that can tell us something about, uh, uh, specific about, you know, that molecular interaction. Yeah. Um, and so that's essentially what the, what the basis of it is. Cool, very cool stuff. Um, so you study these microbes that exist at really high temperatures, and basically you're looking at the minerals that they produce that are unique. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way to look for life without looking specifically for life, right? Absolutely. So a place where life existed, and there's that they've left a signature, but it's not like looking specifically for something living right now. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, one of the key parts of of you know my project is to look for you know minerals that get recorded in rocks that could potentially be detected even after life perhaps no longer exists in that same environment. And in the field of biosignature research, like in the broader field of, of biosignature work, we find that you know, there is a, an active part uh, is to look for organic molecules. And you know, from extensive study on the, the surface of Mars too right now, we've found that you know, while we can detect organic molecules on the surface of Mars, often those organic molecules are highly degraded or have uh, reacted as, as a result of, you know, heavy doses of radiation on the surface as well as oxidants present on the surface that haven't really uh, allowed those molecules to stay intact. Mm -hmm. um, so if we wanted to uh, really get after, you know, what those original organic molecules were, we'd really have to, you know, postulate. I was just reading a paper, I, like I'm in like a planetary geology class, and we were reading a paper about the search for life on um, like moons, icy moons and icy planets and stuff like that. And, the, you know, they said like, oh, we would try to detect amino acids, which are like the building blocks of life. But I was curious, if they don't find amino acids, does that mean any, does that, is that ruling out life? Or is that just saying, well, we didn't find the thing we are used to finding to signify life? So it's not just finding amino acids. You have to find them in, uh, you know, specific amino acids in specific ratios of, uh, you know, what is called enantiomeric excess. That is right-handed amino acids and left-handed amino acids. And, and so, you know, they have to be in a specific ratio uh, to be present for, you know, for, you know, life to exist. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so it's not just about finding the amino acids. A large part of it is the context and, and you know, the environmental context to say, okay, do the, does the environment in which we found those amino acids consist of an environment that would be potentially habitable? Um, and also uh, what would be interesting or important to consider is uh, the fact that those amino acids may not, unless they're like heavily preserved with intimate interactions with rocks and minerals, um, those amino acids like likely are not going to stay preserved in their natural state. Um, and so what we'd find are often, uh, you know, degradation products or, uh, you know, uh, oxidized uh, or chemically oxidized or altered uh, organic compounds that we'd then have to backtrack and figure out what they were and where they came from and what they were related to. Mm. So, <clears throat> so you study these high temperature microbes and those were in the like course of scientific history. Those are relatively recent discoveries, right? Do you? So yeah, they, I mean, I guess they're relatively. <laughs> I, I don't Maybe. know exactly the year in which they were discovered, honestly. Um, but in in the sense of we know very little about like you know the physiology and the metabolic activity of high temperature microbes because a large part of it is because. Uh, you know, to access these high temperature microbes, we've had to, you know, be able to access the environments in which they, they live in. Um, so some of the environments uh, that the microbes that I study come from include deep sea hydrothermal vent environments or hot spring environments. And especially in the, the, the you know, the case of deep sea hydrothermal vents, um, you know, we've only been able to access uh, you know, what happens at these sites as a result now of remote operated vehicles. Mm. Um, so I was actually fortunate this uh, past summer to go on a, a research cruise where uh, for 10 days uh, out off of the coast of Oregon um, uh, to one of the uh, uh, these sites uh, where, you know, you, we you take like this remote operated vehicle that is like, uh, you know, dropped down into the ocean, goes down a mile deep to the bottom of the ocean and surveys these sites, brings along with it like, you know, essentially robotic arms and fluid samplers and so on and so forth to, to really collect samples and bring them back up on, on ship for, for scientists to work with. Um, and it's incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, exciting time to be a researcher because you do get access to environments that you didn't have access to before. So while I don't know, like, you know, how long ago that, that really started about, you know, there is a lot more potential for understanding these processes now because we can access and get samples from a mile or two miles below the surface of the ocean, yeah. That's really cool. Do you, um, so you're just on, on the ship when you do that, you operate this remote vehicle? Yeah, so there are, uh, so this, the, the, the remote operated vehicle that, you know, I got to uh, witness was actually truly a remote operated vehicle where it was handled completely uh, uh, remotely on board. Um, so I didn't get to go down, um, but uh, the, but there are like, you know, there are essentially sub submarine, there are some like, uh, 
you know, there are some vehicles that the, uh, there's the other one, which is Alvin. So th this is the one that I, I got to uh, witness was called Jason. And the other one is called Alvin. And Alvin has like usually like, you know, place for a pilot. Um, mm. And so, uh, you know, it really depends, but most often it's remotely operated vehicles. Cool. Why are they all named after men? Good question. I think it's a problem in science. In Alvin and Jason get to do all this cool yeah. stuff. Great, I get to ask my question after that. <laughs> so um, you probably answered this, but you know I follow like every other word you said, <laughs> like exciting, and you know. But okay, let's say you do find um, a sign, you know, of life where life was there. Mm -hmm. um, then what would be the next step in the process? What would you do after that? So actually getting to that point too um, is that, you know, it's so hard to find a definitive sign of life. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways in which even rocks and minerals can be produced abi abiotically or without the presence of life through completely, uh, you know, chemical processes, not biological processes that, you know, we'd have to make sure that when we did find this fugitive sign of life, um, you know, we did rigorous tests to determine that it really was like truly uh, biogenic or biologically derived. Um, but if we did find signs of life, I think that, you know, it would bring up a lot of questions about, uh, you know, it would tell us something about how perhaps even if we find it on Mars, it could tell us something about how potentially life uh, arose on, on Earth, right? Because it's telling mm -hmm. you something about the origins of life. So we have so much, we have such extensive, like multicellular life on, on Earth that, you know, going back to think about only unicellular life is such a novel concept altogether. Um, but it would tell us something about the origin, but, but I think what, what it would be most interesting, I think, if we were to find life, is to think about like, you know, what next, like, you know, especially in the context of you know, when we think about Mars is like, you know, there, there are questions about, you know, populating Mars, like bring, taking humans to Mars. Like if you found life, do you still go ahead and like, you know, form a settlement or do you think twice about basically removing <laughs> or upsetting already existing life forms on the planet? Mm. It's like an ethical question or a dilemma. Which is coming up right now because there's serious talk about manned missions to Mars. Absolutely. Person to missions to Mars, I should say. <laughs> Absolutely. That's something that, yeah, we also talked about when we were discussing life in other places that uh, we've sent, I forget exactly how many things to Mars, like how many crafts, but uh, the only ones that were actually sterilized to prevent contaminating Mars with like Earth life signals were the very first ones. Um, the Voyager, I think. Uh, Oh, I should be careful about saying things I don't know. But the ones that they did in the 70s, basically. And then the after Viking. that, oh, Viking. Yeah, yeah. not Voyager. Jeez. Yeah. Um, the Vikings. And uh, the, since then, they were like, well, it's too expensive, <laughs> basically. And I guess like there's, there's a two-way concern, right? Like contaminating Mars with our stuff. And then also bringing, if there is something from Mars, that it, we, we've never really brought stuff back, right? <laughs> no, so we do, we haven't had a return mission yet, and I think that that you know that's in the works too. Is because it's so often like hard to 
you know, when you're trying to talk about life on another planet and it's not multicellular life and it's unicellular life, it's life that you cannot see, you know, unless you have a sample in hand, it's so difficult to make big claims about what really is there and what isn't. Um, and so return missions are really important. But I think you bring up a really important, uh, you know, part, uh, you know, in, in generally, like, uh, in generally, in, you know, planetary science and, you know, surface rover operations is that, you know, there are checks and balances in place usually to have at least some level of sterilization that occurs. But the question is, we know that life exists at extreme temperatures, extreme pressures, extreme, you know, salt, like really salty conditions, really dry conditions. We now know of so many different examples of extreme life that you really need to do thorough testing to ensure that you're not bringing along uh, something that could contaminate another planet. Right. About the extreme light. Well, so, yeah, I brought up, I mentioned it earlier, but like that, you know, it, it's relatively recent that we know even that things can exist at such high temperatures. I guess recent is a pretty like vague term, but I think it was like in the 70s sometime that, um, you know, before that we thought all life had to be formed by photosynthetic processes. And then they they took one of these deep sea things down to like look at the mid-ocean ridges where there's volcanoes underground and they were totally not prepared to see anything alive. And they did. And they were like, what is going on? And then that was just a whole new branch of science, basically, that was born out of that discovery. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so you worked at uh, the space, uh, uh, let's see, the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Mm -hmm. What was that like? So it was good, actually. Uh, you know, I, it seems to be that the most of my research experiences, you know, throughout college as well as after college, you know, took on some form of uh, biosignature research. Um, and uh, at Goddard, I actually worked with um, a team that was specifically looking to uh, search for organics on the surface of Mars. So there was, it was a, a team that had uh, designed this, you know, had this instrument that went on the Curiosity rover that was called the Sample Analysis at Mars instrument. And it was an instrument uh, specifically, it was an instrument suite that was specifically designed to detect organic molecules when the samples were collected, the soil samples were collected um, on the planet. And so when I was there for a year, what I uh, got to do was essentially run analog wet chemistry lab experiments to tease apart some of the uh, signal that we were seeing from the different gas chromatography spectra okay. um, from uh, the soil samples on Mars. And so we were seeing the potential for certain organic molecules, but we wanted to make sure, like, uh, whether we wanted to ensure that they were really not uh, any sort of background-like signal or if they were uh, certain molecules, what were the interactions with the rocks and minerals that could have you know, degraded them, transformed them in ways that made them you know, not the original molecules that we would have liked to see. Um, so it, it, was, it was quite the experience, I'd say, uh, because you know, I got to see firsthand how, when data comes from the rover, how it gets analyzed, mm -hmm. um, and what are the different ways in which you have to, uh, you know, take care to 
to interpret it um, because there are so many different steps that really go into understanding what you get because it's not just you know you know all the squiggles don't necessarily make sense until you do some you know uh, experiments in the lab to, to prove what you're seeing is really what, mm. what's there. Yeah, so it's not as straightforward as like, oh, a simple test. Oh, yeah, we know it's there. It's a, there's a lot of interpretation. Absolutely. I'm just curious if, um, if other people here know about gas chromatography or if we should talk about that process. <laughs> huh? Yeah, yeah I've heard of it. <laughs> Do you want to, like, explain gas chromatography at yeah, all? Or is sure, that, sure. Like <laughs> sure. So uh, how gas chromatography really works is... Uh, you inject, so you have a soil sample. So in the case of, you know, the experiment on Mars, you have this, you know, soil sample that was collected in a cup uh, that gets heated to really high temperature to essentially evolve all the, the gases or, like, organics or vapors that may, it may uh, be willing, it may want to give off. Uh, and then you run those gases basically through... A, a really long piece of like it would be like tubing <laughs> um, and you see um, you know how quickly it elutes over time um, so those different gases because they're a complex mixture based on their mass or based, based on their weight they will have a specific elution time in that in that tubing um, and, and it'll tell you basically based on that like you know what potentially it may be. So if you couple that gas chromatograph, this is that process, to another instrument called the mass spectrometer, mm. it tells you at that elution time what are the different masses that you see that together, when they when combined, tell you something about the entirety of the compound that you're seeing. I don't know if that yeah. helps understand <laughs> that a, I got like part of the way there. I don't know. Thanks for cleaning that up. <laughs> <laughs> so it's basically like a very fancy way of figuring out like what chemicals and what compounds Absolutely. there are going on there. Yeah. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a process. How long does that process take? Like to do one second? That actually, it doesn't. It doesn't take terribly long. Um, I mean, <laughs> on the surface of Mars, it probably takes longer because you know there are many different things that need to be aligned. Um, but um, the you know in the lab, if you were to run like a an experimental sample, probably could take you know less than an hour. Mm. Mm. It takes actually less time to do it than to explain it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's true. I think it's all of science. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, so you're really active on campus too. Like we, we you mentioned in your bio that you're um, you're a geo steward, the graduate and planning organization, and uh, geo is a committee member. Do you want to talk about your experiences on campus or your activism? Or I don't know if activism is the right word to use. Sorry. Um, so yeah, I uh, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a union steward for my department, um, and what that essentially entails is I am sort of the uh, I bridge the gap between students, graduate student employees in my in my department and the broader uh, you know the the union office itself. Um, and uh, you know, give a chance for uh, students uh, who are also employees in, in my department to have a voice uh, in, in the union. 
But more than that, the, the role of the union, uh, the role of the steward also has to do uh, with um, ensuring that uh, the rights and protections of all graduate student employees uh, you know, across campus, so b but within departments when they're specific union stewards, are actually uh, being maintained, right? So, you know, if there are uh, trouble, if there's trouble, uh, troubles or issues associated with uh, employment that come up, those can be brought to the attention of the steward who then, you know, has uh, the tools available to guide and assist uh, graduate students uh, in finding the right recourse. Nice. <clears throat> I kind of want to go back, sorry, <laughs> um, and talk more about like the search for life on, uh, on other planets. Um, so I guess it seems like that's like one of the, the driving forces in our space exploration right now. And I'm just curious, like, why do you think that is? Like what, <laughs> this is sort of a deep, more of a like broad than scientific question, I guess. But yeah, I think, I think everybody wants to know how we got here, right? How everybody has like, wants to know the existential question of like, you know, what is life? How did it arise? Um, you know, what is the potential distribution of life? Uh, you know, how did we go from microbes to like, you know, animals to us? And like, you know, we really wanted, you know, we, we're sort of, you know, at least I often am puzzled by, you know, how much, you know, individual microbes when they're part of their broader microbial communities can do um, and in shaping environments. Uh, but, you know, to think about like how we went from there to us is like another like, you know, mind boggling question that we just don't necessarily know how to address. And so I think, you know, one of the ways in which um, I think, you know, space exploration is doing that is to give us like another example, perhaps, of, uh, of life that could tell us something about life here on Earth and how it may have arisen. Yeah. I'm curious if that, like, so I've seen some uh, backlash about all of the push for space exploration lately. I don't know if you guys have seen this or what your feelings about it are, but um you know, people saying this isn't really worthwhile, like we have so many problems here on Earth, like why are we? I'm just curious what the other guests think about um, the search for life, <laughs> not to put you on the spot too much. Is this something that interests you or do you feel like it's like, what do you see like the value in that or are you kind of like, no, we should be investing more resource resources here on Earth? <laughs> um, personally, I think we should um, explore the places and try to find life because um, I think it's a situation that's inevitable that um, we're overpopulating this planet. <laughs> you know, we gonna need to expand. So that's your that's like what? Well, I think that's the your reality, your personal motivation for like why it's worthwhile. Well, um, well, I think um, you know the thing about you know the human species or whatever is the fact that we have the ability to learn and we constantly want to learn. We want to know more. We want to know. So I think. Um, you know, I think just that reason is worthwhile. Um, but, I mean, realistically, you know, there's, I always believe in truth and reality. The reality is, you know, we're not going to stop populating the earth and taking it over. That's what 
species do. Mm. You know, that's why there's other species to balance out the species that, you know, uh, populate for population control and balance. We, ha we the humans are the only species on the planet that go unchecked. No, I think it's pretty cool, uh, but <laughs> I guess more for the ex like another example of like, hey, if we can see it on this other planet like that, maybe like extrapolated to Earth or something like that. So yeah, I think it should be a thing that we should pursue. Okay, mm. I was just trying to stir up controversy, <laughs> but it yeah, didn't I, work I, at I, all. Yeah. <laughs> got, like, it's always really good to hear the, the other <laughs> side, right? You know, it gives you perspective sometimes too, and and I think that um, you know you can be tied up in in questions that you find so interesting as scientists that you know you forget what that broader picture is and it's really important to think back to the broader picture and whether it really serves like you know greater good or a greater purpose um, and I think that's equally important you're listening to lab talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst our guests today are Srishti Kashyap and George Lucasio of UMass Amherst, and I'm joined by co-host, comedian Tim Lovett. Jumping right back into it. So moving on to talk to George. Uh, George, could you just go ahead and tell us about your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so our lab works with plants and insects, uh, but mainly one type of insect right now, so the eastern common bumblebee. And so it's out here in New England and North America, so... It's an abundant species that you can find flying around during the summer, um, which is why we get to use it in the lab. It's not like in decline. It's not one of those endangered things where it's uh -huh. like, oh, we're just going to take it out of the wild and use it in the lab. But so there's a common parasite that is a detriment to it that reduces how it can forage and pollinate. And so what we've looked at is how different uh, parts of its diet, so nectar and pollen, which are parts of the plant for the pollens for reproduction and nectar is like this reward for it to cross pollinate with different flowers. But so there's different chemistry going on. That is not my expertise, but there's potentially some chemistry going on in there that what we've found is with sunflowers, that pollen kills or suppresses this parasite in laboratory trials. So what we do is we infect the bees with this pathogen, this, this parasite. And then we give it a week worth of a manipulated part of the pollen or nectar or different things like that. And so after a week, um, we see how these plant products, the pollen or the nectar, suppresses or not this parasite. And in my study, we found that a bunch of different wild types and cultivars of sunflowers reduce this parasite. And then there's relatives within this really big plant family, Asteraceae, that sunflowers is in, but three of its relatives that are just loosely related also suppress the parasite. And so that's potentially really cool because it is a really big plant family. So dandelions, ragweed, chicory, all these plants are related in Asteraceae. And the ones that we use, which were not dandelion or chicory or ragweed, but um, other ones that are loosely related suppress this parasite. So that could infer that this plant family has a broader impact on the landscape because if its pollen is medicinal, potentially it could be reducing this parasite if, it, if these plants grew in abundance. Because um, the parasite, at least here in the Pioneer Valley, in a study that was done with our lab, showed that um, I think 
a couple different species at different sites, 80% of the bees on the landscape in these different sites had this parasite. So it can be a pretty prevalent parasite out there. And um, if we can kind of reduce this one, one, uh, one pathogen, uh, it'll help this, at least this one type of bee, the Eastern Common Bumblebee, with potentially having it forge better, but also another part of the detrimental part of this parasite is that if queens winter over, so they're a little bit different than honeybees, which I can explain further, but um, the bumblebees, just the mated queens winter over, and then they start the colony anew every spring. And if they have this parasite, they don't produce as many workers in the early colony development in early spring. So it's like two-part thing where it's reducing essentially the amount of bees, but also if they have a lot of this parasite, they can't forage as efficiently. Mm. And so if you can reduce this one parasite, it's one of those things that we hope it could reduce one of those things that is aiding in declines of of bumblebees but not all bees are in decline and not all bumblebees are in decline but it's just a multifaceted issue one of the things is pathogens so, mm. so. does this parasite affect other kinds of bees too so the parasite it doesn't have a common name but it's crithidia bombi okay. and so we'll just call it crithidia um but so that specific one affects bumblebees but then there's another one that affects honeybees and so more like brother and sister kind of a thing, but uh, that's how they're related. But uh, so they do affect uh, a bunch of different bees. What, have you seen this parasite? Like, what does it look like? Um, so it's kind of teardrop shaped. It's a, it's a eukaryote. So it's related to African sleeping sickness and Chagas disease. So it's a tripanosome. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> oh, that was lost. <laughs> oh, so, so Chagas disease and uh, African sleeping okay. sickness are parasites that affect humans. Okay. And so it's just one okay. of those kind of like fun facts where it's like, oh, yeah. like it, something related to those <laughs> affects bees as well. And it's like, oh, it's like mm -hmm. across the animal kingdom there. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of teardrop shaped, one little circular blob with a little tail. Okay. So we'll flip it It probably exists, you know, as as multiple like parasites in the bee. It's probably not just one parasite. Oh, yeah. That no, there's two forms. The, yeah. There's there's the two bee. forms. Yeah. <laughs> Where one has the little tail, and then there's a form that doesn't really. So if it's a it's a type of parasite that affects bees and also humans. No, so <laughs> this not not the specific one, but it's a, like the same category. Yeah, of parasite? yeah, like trypanosomes, <laughs> this big broad family. Okay. And some of them affect humans, and then some affect bees. Yeah. So the ones that affect bees, at least as far as I know, is. The one that we work with doesn't affect humans. Okay, so it's the category, though. Um, yeah, it's the like. Broad so does category. that mean? Um, and maybe you don't have an answer for this, and that's okay. But does that mean that like learning about how bees, about how like things affect the bees' experience with this parasite, could that also affect understanding of how humans are affected by that group of parasite, or is that a little bit too far of a stretch? I think that's a little bit too far, but there's a cool thing. So again, that huge plant family, Asteraceae. They found that a relative in that plant family, you can, there's a compound in it that suppresses Chagas disease. So not saying that our system can be like proposed to human mm -hmm. systems, but it's kind of a weird tie-in is this plant family where 
the pollen of this of sunflowers can affect this gut parasite in bumblebees, but also another loosely related plant can some part of that plant can uh, help aid in mm -hmm. human health. Okay, so there is yeah, there is a connection. So there. yeah, but via yeah, Asteraceae, yeah. the plant yeah. family. So. Well, so how do you infect the bees with the parasite? Uh -huh. <laughs> so we keep colonies of bees with the parasite in them. So mm -hmm. it's like a live, essentially, culture in a, in a colony in the lab. And then we dissect the workers, and then we count the parasite with a hemocytometer, which is like a pretty strange uh, microscope slide where you can count... Uh, different things it was made for uh, red blood cell counting but okay. y you can use it to see these things kind of swimming around in there and you get a count and then you take that sample and then you mix it with a little bit of sucrose and then you feed it to the bee live so you, we isolate mm -hmm. the bees make it an inoculum which is what ha the parasite or with the parasite and then you feed the bees individually and then we do our manipulations <laughs> that way <laughs> so worst meal of their life actually. yeah pretty much yeah yeah <laughs> kind of turning them into cannibals too because we're like ripping the bee guts out of uh, other bees oh yeah and so. feeding it to them you, you may have answered this question but <laughs> we, we, let, let's just ask it again for the cheap seats you know yeah. um, so how does the parasite does the parasite i know you said um the parasites affect the bees like when they're making new colonies yeah. and stuff but how does it directly like affect the bees? Like an individual bee, how does it this parasite direct like um, you know individual bee? Yeah, yeah, no, perfect. Um, so it adheres to its like the gut lining, and then it takes nutrients and uh, f from the bee. So it's a parasite directly to the bee that way, and. So it takes nutrients from it, but it also has to fight it off. So it's like an immunity thing, too, because it's trying to get rid of it um, mm -hmm. in some way. And so if there's a, it takes nutrients, but also if there's a lot of the parasite in the bee, it, it learns slower. And that goes back to how I was saying it forages less efficiently on, other, on flowers. Mm -hmm. So if it has a lot of this parasite, it can't like forage and collect pollen for cross-pollination and that's how plants reproduce so if these bees forage less then i don't want to really say that but if they forage less then there could potentially be less plant reproduction mm. and so if there's a, an, an abundance of this parasite they don't forage as efficiently and so they won't eat as much because they're only eating nectar and pollen from flowers and so if they don't forage as much they don't get as much nutrients and sugars, and so they can can slowly starve. So, I mean, I think that I think maybe this is part of what your question was too, yeah. just just a moment ago. Is that uh, does it have like so? Do as a result of like the parasite, do the bees have a certain symptom have certain symptoms or pathology like that you see like in terms of at the individual scale, right? Do you see like that the the bees are like skinnier, like they're not happier? Like how <laughs> yeah. do you measure you those measure? types yeah. of things? Like bee yeah. fever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do bees get fever? Exactly, because yeah, yeah. you know, I, I I don't know if like there are ways in which you can tell like a healthy bee from a, a really sick bee. So it comes down to foraging, and so I haven't personally mm. seen it, but you can watch a bee, and ones that more or less are not sick will like immediately go to the flower 
part that they want to get pollen and nectar from, and then the sick bee, because it's foraging less efficiently, will land on the flowers kind of like it's drunk. It'll be like, oh man, where is all this stuff? It doesn't then, even know where to find exactly. the food. <laughs> it's like yeah. stumbling around in the kitchen, exactly. like looking in the dishwasher. Yeah. No. <laughs> or like, oh, you know, put the nachos in the oven and then falls asleep. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> I just have strictly bee questions. Cool. <laughs> Hopefully I can answer okay. them, I, no promise. Is it true that only female bees sting? You're correct. Yes, only female bees can sting. Uh, so drones, the male workers, mm -hmm. uh, well, they're not even really workers. They just kind of, they're there for sperm and that's it. And <laughs> that's it. You only need one. Yeah. Wait, and, it's, um, they, why are they called workers if they're not They're not. Working? So they're drones. Oh, they're drones. Yeah. Okay. So drones, workers, and queens are make up the colony. Um, but yeah, so the drones, the males don't have stingers. So specifically what um, you and your, your department, what have you found what grounds have you know what strides have you made and you know um and finding about the parasite and what have you discovered basically so my work has pretty much come up with the conclusion at least in uh these laboratory trials that sunflower pollen and goldenrod pollen can suppress this parasite and so that's important because it's a detriment to bumblebees. And we want bees on the landscape out in the wild because for two reasons. Because in agriculture, that's mm -hmm. how plants reproduce and we like fruits. But also to like maintain a diverse plant community. So we need pollinators around, but with us specifically bees, um, which is just because that's what we work with. Um, so that they can maintain pollination and we can have fruits from agriculture and then maintaining a diverse landscape with plant reproduction. Now, when you say suppress, mm -hmm. now that's not, um, is that meaning in a bee that's already infected or is it just the, the halt of reprotect, reproduction of the parasite? Yeah, that is an awesome question. So as of right now, our, our, our studies have mainly focused on we infect the bee and then we immediately give it the sunflower pollen or like different types of pollen. And so it is a little, little hard to say that it's suppressing the parasite because it's essentially like, Oh, I know I got flu today. Mm. I need to go to the doctors and take an antibiotic. And it's like before the uh, sickness can like really take hold, uh, we're given the treatment right away. And so it's right now it's if we can give the infection and they can have the essentially the, the medicine, it keeps it down or just gets rid, rid of it entirely. And what we're looking at, though, are more like time trials. So if we can give the infection and then wait a couple of days and then give it the, the medicine, does it suppress it that way? And we've just kind of started looking at that. And it still looks like giving it right away, of course, keeps this, the, the, the load down, the amount of parasite that are in the guts low. Um, but we need to look at that further to see if like, it's actually suppressing and like, really wiping it out like an antibiotic in humans. Mm. So we're looking at that more. So that's a super good question, though. So the next step is keep the bees sick longer. Yeah. And then yeah. No. Essentially, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we we looked at really short time trials where 
it was still a seven-day trial, which is what we do, so um, at least for now. We gave the, the bees the parasite and then waited three and a half days, and then we gave them the sunflower pollen. And it did keep it keep the, the infection level down, but not sti statistically significant compared to our like negative control pollen. So the negative control being something that kind of promotes the parasite when it just eats that one pollen. Mm. So after three days, um, giving it sunflower pollen didn't have a big of a difference from just seven days of the like promoting pollen that keeps the parasite around. Uh, what are the promoting pollen? So right now it's really just buckwheat pollen, which mm. is not, uh, I know less about that plant than the Asteraceae ones, the sunflowers and stuff like that. But um, that for some reason does, doesn't like keep the parasite load down. So would this research indicate that like it, you want to plant certain types of plants near bee colonies so that they'll like pollinate that first or is that kind of like a is that beyond the scope of this or it kind of is beyond the scope just because this is very much like in the laboratory and so it's hard to because we keep the bees in isolation and not in a colony when we're doing these these trials it's so it's a little bit hard to infer past these kind of like laboratory trials but it's looking like in the future if we can get there yeah it looks like planting say sunflowers which are native to north america not necessarily new england but it looks like sunflowers and goldenrod and goldenrod is native to new england and it can really grow kind of weedy but keeping them around it looks like yeah we could it could be a good thing for pollinators especially because goldenrod it's one of the last blooming flowers in like late summer into fall. Mm. And so how I was saying before, if the queens that are infected produce less workers going into hibernation, if they can forge on these plants, potentially on these plants before they go into hibernation, they may come out of hibernation uh, healthier. And so they could not be affected by producing less workers. So. so how do you get the bumblebees for your life? Ah, that's another awesome question. So you can literally buy boxes of bees so there's companies that that's what they do is they raise and rear bombus impatiens, so the eastern common bumblebee in uh, North America, it's that species, and in Europe, it's another species, bombus terrestris. I don't know the common name of that, but um, so but these bombus two... is the genus. Yes, genus. bombus is the genus. It's a cool genus. Yeah, bombus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But so yeah, you can com these hives are commercially available. So that's why we can keep them in the lab and use them in the lab and do these trials and things like that in the winter even. And the reason why they're commercially available is to kind of go on to agriculture. They are used as essentially a pollination tool in greenhouses. So you buy a box of these pollinators and then you open the box in a greenhouse where there's, say, tomato plants. And then you have them go forage and they cross pollinate and then you get tomatoes in the middle of winter. Wow, I had no idea. I, I don't know why I never thought of this, but I never thought about people releasing bees into their own greenhouse. Yeah. Seems like sort of a bad idea, but I guess right. it's, no. <laughs> it's, no, it's not. It's idea. really not. Like, <laughs> once you're, they're, if, essentially, if they're, like, busy and doing their thing, they don't care about you. Like, uh -huh. even out in the wild, like, you can go up to a, one of the big fuzzy bumblebees and just watch it really closely, and it doesn't care about you. It just wants to do its thing, get nectar, get pollen hang out so it's all good until the bees get bored 
Yeah, I don't even. even well, in the lab, they're bored because there's like nothing going on. And well, they're they like, know, what are you trying to mess like, with me? You're like, why are you trying to make us all sick? Like, yeah. I saw what happened to my friends who went with you last time. Yeah, they go in that tube and don't come out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, it just seems like about September, October, and you see the bees just hovering and, you know. It yeah. seem like they just, you know, they just want to do one last hurrah sting you and just get, get, get <laughs> no, no, they definitely not looking to sting you. Yeah, it's always interesting to think about scientific supplies. I don't know. Yeah. Do you, Shushi, do you have any strange suppliers of things like you? So, so you, you've gone and collected the microbes yourself. That, are those the ones that you're using for your research? So it's actually interesting because, you know, there are like centralized microbe, like, like microbial um culture collections like that you know where you can go and purchase a particular isolate of interest um or like a you know a particular strain of interest so you may want to say tomorrow that i want to grow this microbe so you can just go online and find that strain and like say like purchase and buy and then you can like bring <laughs> and that comes delivered to your lab and you say tomorrow okay i'm gonna grow this pathogen in lab <laughs> no it doesn't really work that way but it really is you can totally buy like so you know specific strains that are maintained by hmm. uh you know centralized uh culture collections mm. um and uh and you know that's essentially like you said you know you you know someone does the job of maintaining those cultures <laughs> yeah. uh as individual like uh isolate strains yeah. and then you know when someone places an order they're essentially shipped to you <laughs> do you do you need credentials to do that like yeah, yeah. I'm, okay I'm, you can't, I'm sure. i couldn't I, I couldn't just <laughs> casually like request some high temperature microbes yeah, to like have, to. Ha have a as a pet <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah. most most of the high temperature like microorganisms that at least our lab studies are non-pathogenic okay. so it's you know also like they don't really grow at like room temperature or mm. at body temperature they only really grow at these really elevated temperatures that none of us really experience on a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis. Okay. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, you know, we're fortunate, uh, you know, to work with, with those. But, you know, there are, like, you know, there is the possibility of, of you know, being able to order, like, some really pathogenic st strain from these culture collections. And so there are checks and balances mm -hmm. to ensure that not anybody can can purchase. <laughs> like a year later, they're like, what do you do with those microbes? <laughs> We should get some microbes and put them in the bees. <laughs> That's essentially what he does. The right. parasites are nothing right. but like you. You yeah. know, to be like a Marvel team of <laughs> talking about cross pollination. Yeah. <laughs> and send the bees to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> I like that combined project. Yeah. It's quite sounds quite fascinating. <laughs> okay. I think we're ready to move on to the last part of our show, which is where we play a game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. <laughs> um, and basically this show, or uh, basically this game is I, uh, I've sought out some acronyms in the fields of microbiology and bees. <laughs> oh. So what I'll do is I'll I'll put forth an acronym and we're going to have Tim try to guess what it means. And then we'll see if one of our experts wants to jump in and tell us what it actually means. And just in case nobody knows what it means, 
I wrote the list. So I <laughs> so I've used the internet <laughs> to yeah. establish the meaning of these of these acronyms. Okay. So we'll start with some biology related acronyms. Uh, the first one is RNA. RNA stands for random amino neutrons. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I think you switched up the letter order there. Oh, what was it? What was it? RNA. Oh, RNA. Oh, I did. I did. I'm dyslexic. Plus, my English is broken, so it's worse. <laughs> RNA. Random neutron. <laughs> <laughs> neutron aminos. Okay. That's not it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know there was a buzzard in this game. <laughs> All sound effects for this. Does anybody know what RNA stands for? Ribonucleic acid. Ah, ding, ding, ding. Correct. Yeah. Like second grade stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I um, I feel like sometimes you're so used to working with an acronym that you kind of don't even bother exactly. to know what it means, yeah. actually. So that, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't going to take that one for granted. But yeah. <laughs> Give me the answer to that one again. It's ribonucleic acid. It's All basically, right. so you go from DNA, that's the gene. Yes. That when genes get expressed, uh, they... Uh, you know, make these, make basically the equivalent, uh, the expressed form is the ribonucleic acid, RNA. And then when that uh, RNA, uh, what that RNA essentially produces eventually is uh, a protein or an enzyme that then carries out the function that that gene intended to, to happen in the first place. Hmm. Okay. So it does all the work. Yeah, so I mean, essentially it's, it's like the middle step Mm. From going from DNA to a protein. Okay. Okay. If you I, want the I'm simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next one. A M R. A M R. A M R. Acid molecular reduction. <laughs> Nice. That was a really solid um, yeah. made-up like answer. Like, <laughs> taking all the words he's heard, like, in the last hour. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and piece them together to make, <laughs> make up the acronym. Okay, so I'm curious, does anybody know what this one is? I don't know if it's a commonly used acronym. I so actually don't know what that one is. It's a very fam unfamiliar acronym to me. Okay, so what it, what I got from the internet is antimicrobial resistance. Oh, okay. Can you tell us what antimicrobial resistance is? So, you know, I could give you an example of what antimicrobial resistance uh, is all about. Is essentially, like, you know, I can, the, one of the examples I could think of is, you know, we extensively wash our hands with these, you know, with Purell and with, like, all these antibacterial, uh, antimicrobial agents in our soaps. And what essentially those end up doing is that they kill what are good microbes for us, um, uh, help like microbes that actually help us stay healthy. Um, and uh, when we constantly do things like that, uh, because we end up killing those good, healthy, like you know, health-maintaining microbes, uh, what we do is we propagate like sort of changes in microorganisms that uh, prevent. Um, those microbes to do their their inherent job. Um, antimicrobial resistance is essentially a term to say, like, you know, is no longer resistant mm -hmm. to that antimicrobial uh, because it has acquired newfangled ways to bypass what it was used to uh, being treated with. 
that's probably like one easy way to explain it. Um, yeah. I'm sure there are better ways to do it. Uh, and I don't know if I did justice. Thank you for trying. Yeah. <laughs> I know I totally put you on the spot there. So that's like how kind of like the things that survive like adapt and grow more. And so then there's more things that grow that are just like, oh, I don't care about your hand sanitizer. And so you just like got rid of all the nice things and kept only the strongest, worst ones. Absolutely. Sort of. Okay. Okay. So now we'll move on to B acronyms. Oh, <laughs> so I, I happen to kn know an apiarist, so I asked him for some B acronyms, but they may not be relevant because they're about honeybees and not bumblebees. We'll have to see. Okay. So the first one is CCD. You know this one? I do. <laughs> <laughs> Sigh of relief. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't know, we, we didn't sign up for an exam here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. CCD, chronic crimes on drones. <laughs> That's a good nice. one. I like it. Can you tell me what that is, Tim? <laughs> so when you take a drone out of its natural habitat, <laughs> and then you infest it with parasites. <laughs> <laughs> And molested with tweezers. <laughs> okay. George, you want to jump in and tell us what CCD really is? So it's colony collapse disorder. Mm. And so with honeybees, it's just, I forget, in the mid-2000s there, there was um, a massive bee die-off that happened with honeybees, not bumblebees, but... Um, with managed honeybees, uh, just these bees got up and left the hive or kind of something like that and they don't know why. And so the colony just collapsed and meaning that it just, they were gone. So beekeepers went in looked in their hives and there was just like a couple of stragglers. And I don't know much about it, but from what I understand, it's, you know, like most things, it's not this one thing that makes the colony leave the hive, but it's a bunch of different things. I don't know much about but it. But it doesn't affect bumblebees in the same way? No. That's good. Okay, well, that's the end of our game. Well done, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I think God. that even though you didn't actually get the correct things for any of the acronyms, you came up with equally good acronyms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think you won. The important thing is that I had fun. <laughs> and I learned in the process. <laughs> really good sound by there. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, that's the end of our show. So thank you so much for joining me, uh, Srishti, George, and Tim. No, well, thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> thanks, This <Laura>. was great. <laughs> A lot of fun. Okay. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My co-host today was comedian Tim Lovett, CEO of Comedy is a Weapon, and also DJ on 106.3 Smooth FM. My guests today were Srishti Kashyap and George Lacasio of UMass Amherst. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Thank you so much for listening. Stick around for WMUA News coming right up.